On the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after that first Easter, Peter stood before the multitudes in Jerusalem, and he explained to them what they were seeing. It wasn't a bunch of drunken people speaking in other languages, but it was, in fact, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as God had promised to the prophet Joel, that in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh, and that sons and daughters, male servants and female servants would prophesy. So he explains, that's what you're seeing, and then... He goes on to address the crowd. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men, that is, by the hands of the Romans. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. It wasn't possible for death to bind him to shackle him, to keep him in its stomach. Christ is inevitable. And Peter goes on to tell us why. Why was it that death could not hold Jesus in its power? Why was it impossible? He says, David says concerning him, And then he quotes from Psalm 16, which we recited together. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Peter goes on, and he interprets this now. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, and he spoke about the resurrection of, of the Christ. Remember, Christ or Messiah just means anointed one. Uh, It became a euphemism for the anointed king. Anointed kings had to come from the anointed line, which was David's line. You will remember that um, David was called by Jesse out of the fields to stand before Samuel, and his head was anointed with oil. He would be king. He was chosen. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the anointed one, the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades and nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus died and God raised up. That's why it was impossible for death to hold him. And of this, we are all witnesses. God had promised to David, King David, after he had, after he had won the kingdom, he had, been, he had received the kingdom after waiting uh, maybe 15 years or so 
from the time of his anointing to the time of his enthronement, spent a lot of years in preparation and in waiting for the Lord to deliver the kingdom to him in his own time, in his own way. And in 2 Samuel 7, once the kingdom was secure, the Lord made this astonishing promise to David, who was the eighth in a line of boys, and thought lowly of himself. David had expressed this desire to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple, because up to this point, the Israelites had moved the house of the Lord around, um, essentially it was a tent um, that you could pack up. This is is what the tabernacle was. was It was a mobile temple. So David wanted to construct a permanent house for the Lord, Uh, But the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, comes back to him and says, I didn't ask for you to do that. But here's what I will do for you. This is picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, and we will do verse, we'll just start in verse 10. Um, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and their own place, uh, so that they may dwell in their own place. My eyes are bad, embarrassingly. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, O David, who wants to make me a house, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. So David, he says in Psalm 16 that he meditates on the Lord. The Lord is with him in the watches of the night. David was a man of deep contemplation, and he pondered this promise that God had given to him, that there would be a son that comes after him who would build a temple, build the house of the Lord, and whose throne and whose dominion would be established forever. And at some point, David penned Psalm 16, and he understood that, just like he he says in, in another psalm that he wrote in Psalm 110, he understood that from his own line would come this anointed one who was holy, who was different, in order to have a throne established forever. Notice, God didn't say David's throne would be established forever. He said the the throne of your son will be established forever. So he's not just saying that this dynasty is going to last forever, although he is saying that. But he's also saying that this particular king's reign will last forever. So in Psalm 110, David, after some some meditation, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You've heard this. It's the most quoted psalm. It's the most quoted Bible verse in the New Testament. The apostles say it. Jesus says it. He he tells it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and stumps them. If, if, the, if the Messiah is supposed to be David's son, which means he's his inferior, then why does David say in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David goes on to say in this Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after, in, in the order or after the pattern of Melchizedek. 
which is kind of a bizarre name, which we have considered naming our sons. <clears throat> but we won't. It's too far out. Melchizedek only makes an appearance one time prior to Psalm 110, and he only makes an appearance one time afterwards when, uh, when Hebrews picks up on the theme of Melchizedek. But this idea that David has in his mind is, and his pondering is, is you know, he's thinking about God's promise to him. How is it that I will have a son that's going to be the king forever? And then he also realizes whoever this king is, he also needs to occupy this priestly role because this is a wicked people and we need we need a priest to stand in the gap for us. We don't just need a godly ruler. We need a priest to make atonement for us. And so David considers the law, which God had commanded him to meditate upon day and night, which David says he loved. Um, and he realizes, oh, there, there is a way for, for my descendant to be a priest. Because I'm from the line of Judah, and priests don't come from Judah. They come from the line of, of Aaron, who's a Levite. But he realizes there was a king prior to me who was also a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Before it was conquered by David, it was, it was Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was the king, and he was this priest. And he comes into the narrative in Genesis 14, and then he disappears entirely. We don't hear anything about him until Psalm 110. So he has this eternal, you know, if you read Genesis, it's all about this man lived this many years, and then he died. And then he birthed this person, and he lived this many years, and then he died. But Melchizedek, he just kind of floats in, floats out, nothing else is said about him. He's this priest slash king, and David contemplates God's promise to him that he's going to provide this heir that will rule forever. But if he's going to be established forever, something has to be done about sin and so inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the likeness or in the pattern of Melchizedek. Interesting. At some point, he writes Psalm 16. We don't know if that was before Psalm 110 or not. The, the numbers are kind of arbitrary. But in Psalm 16, once again, he's understanding he's the anointed one. And down the line somewhere is this anointed offspring and God will not let his Holy One see corruption. He will not abandon him to Hades or to the grave. This theme of um, foreverness, of endurance, like Melchizedek, has this eternal nature to him um, that David is, is, is grasping for and writing about in his poems, in his psalms, um, it's attested to, it's echoed. You hear it, you hear it elsewhere. Jonah was in the belly uh, of the earth uh, for three days and three nights. Um, Hosea, in chapter 6 of Hosea, it says this, uh, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. These resurrection hints, these whispers of what God intends to do, maybe, maybe preeminently in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. It says of him, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, and remember, guilt offerings were animals that were sacrificed unto death. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for them. There's this paradox in the scriptures that Peter and the other disciples and everybody in Jerusalem was familiar with. This paradox that some, some son from the line of David is going to reign forever and yet is going to suffer And Jesus is there telling them, preparing them, when we go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to raise on the third day. But they couldn't get it. It wasn't clicking until the resurrection. And then Jesus prepares them. He he explains to them. He walks them through the scriptures and tells the apostles how they testified to him. He does that for 40 days. He ascends into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to declare boldly and clearly what it is that the scriptures had always said and what Jesus had promised and fulfilled. He says, it was not possible for death to hold him. Why? Because God's word is inevitable. God had promised that death would not hold him. God had promised that his flesh would not see corruption. Christ is inevitable because God's word is inevitable and Christ is God's word in the flesh. I prepared a litany, a list of other inevitabilities from God's word. As we, as we just examined, the resurrection was inevitable because God had promised it. What else? The perpetual increase of his kingdom on the throne of David is inevitable. This is our favorite Handel's Messiah. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Yes, the perpetual increase of Christ's kingdom on the throne of David is inevitable. Also, the bowing of every knee before him is inevitable. The confession that Jesus is Lord by every tongue is inevitable. The fullness of the Gentiles brought to salvation is inevitable after which the ingathering of the Jews into Christ is inevitable. The reach of salvation to the ends of the earth is inevitable. The filling up of the world with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea is inevitable. 
The reconciling of all things together in Christ is inevitable. The subduing of every single one of his enemies is inevitable. The obedience of the peoples is inevitable. And the worship of every nation is inevitable. His praises sung in every language is inevitable. His kingdom come is inevitable. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven is inevitable. The preeminence of Christ above and before all things and above and before all names is inevitable. God's plans, brothers and sisters, are inevitable. God's promises are inevitable. God's purposes are inevitable. And therefore, Christ himself is inevitable. He has demonstrated that nothing can stop him. Not Satan, not sin, not even death. When Satan tried to thwart him, the plan backfired and it became salvation for the world. When the sinfulness of man rejected him, crying out, crucify him, crucify him, God turned that sin into salvation for the world. When death consumed him, he ripped open the grave for the salvation of the world. Our God is unstoppable, and his Christ is inevitable. If that sounded redundant, it was meant to be. Because the liturgy of our world, of our news cycles, of the spirit of the age, of our, our leading institutions, are telling us something to the contrary. But we gather in this space with saints around the world and in heaven and across the ages, and we declare the truth. Christ is inevitable. He reigns at the Father's right hand, and of the increase of that reign, there will never be an end. Every one of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That is inevitable because that is what the Father has promised his Son. As Logan read in Psalm 2, the Father asked the Son, well, he told him, ask of me. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me. You'll remember that Satan came to Jesus once and offered that very thing to him. Worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms in their glory. And Jesus, you'll remember, he didn't turn around and say, they're not yours to give. He didn't say that because at that time, Satan did have authority over the nations all the nations except for Israel, which was God's special inheritance. The nations were under the rule of the principalities and powers. But when Jesus conquered them, when he put them to open shame 
and disarmed them on the cross, when he rose on the third day, their power over the nations was shattered. Their right to the nations to rule them was shattered. And from that moment, it has been one continual march through history of the proclamation that the nations belong to Jesus, that he has purchased them by his blood, and the Father will bring them all to him. They will be his inheritance. It is inevitable because the word has said so. Now, as the people of God, we stand uh, or sit in a very privileged place. We have been loved by God such that the inevitability of Christ, it's not a terror to us, but a blessing. It's a terror to those in rebellion. That's why, again, David says in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. We are those who have taken refuge in him. And yet, because we inhabit these bodies, which have not been fully redeemed, there is something terrible about the inevitability of Christ. He demands all of us, and yet we withhold ourselves from him. He expects obedience. He is a king, after all. But we disobey. He speaks life over us, and yet we entertain narratives of death. He says that we are free, but like the Israelites in the wilderness, we cling to the creature comforts of slavery in Egypt. He offers us new life, but we prefer, at least in some respects, our old life. He offers us resurrection, but we refuse to die. We refuse to die that we might experience resurrection. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. I think one of the most interesting words in that invitation is daily. Daily. Whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The only way to take up your cross day after day is if God resurrects you day after day. The only way that you can experience the freedom of the new life is if you're willing to let die whatever it is that he's asking you to let die. Whatever needs to be crucified with Christ, you will not be free from and you will not experience the resurrection of Christ in unless you are willing to die. We're in Eastertide. It's 50 days of, of resurrection. But Jesus' invitation stands throughout Easter, just as it does in, in all the other times of the year. 
If you want resurrection, you have to go through the cross daily. I don't know your hearts. I can't see them. But Christ can. The one who is inevitable and who will inevitably cleanse and purify you and present you to the Father in a manner that is acceptable, who will renew your body so that you can stand in the glory of God for eternity. That same inevitable one knows your hearts. And he sees the things in each of us that need to die. Not under judgment, but so that he can raise them and raise us unto life. Those things which enslave us, those habits and patterns and sins that we can't shake, the stories that we've told ourselves of how we've been wronged or how we've been hurt irredeemably, or I'm just made this way, all of that needs to die before Christ can raise you up. But are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him, trusting that the resurrection life that he offers far surpasses what you could imagine for yourself in whatever that old life is? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. At the Easter vigil, um, Saturday before last Sunday, I prayed from Ephesians 1, this prayer of St. Paul, asking that God would enlighten the eyes of the hearts of this church, this church that he had spent three years teaching daily, the whole counsel of God. Can you imagine St. <laughs> Paul, six days a week, teaching a community? Three years. And yet he had to pray for them that the Lord would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, that they would be able to grasp and comprehend for themselves three things. One, the hope to which he has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This idea that we are his special possession, that we are treasured by him, that we would be able to comprehend that. God considers us his inheritance. And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What type of power? How is it manifest? Where does it come from? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, by this resurrection power, he put all things under his feet. And 
He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you notice that it's almost like a new cosmetology? Cosmology, excuse me, not cosmetology. Cosmology. (laughs) It's almost like a new cosmology. You know, you have... You have the dark waters, the you know, pillars of the earth, and then you have the land, and then you have the heavens. Um, that, that was acceptable in, in, in that day. But, but what, what Paul is praying is that the Christians in Ephesus would know that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know the hope they've been called to, that they would know that they are God's inheritance, and that they would know the great power that's available to them. And it's the same power that raised Jesus above all the spiritual powers and authorities. Satan, the principalities that ruled over the various nations before Jesus purchased them by his blood. He's been raised up above all of them, and and it says all things have been placed under his feet. But he was given as head to the body, to the church, which is his body. Where does that put the church, friends? All things have been placed under the feet of Christ. We are his body. All the principalities, the powers, the rulers and authorities have been placed underneath the church. Christ is inevitable. And the manifestation of that rule and authority, the the working of Christ's power in his church, it's inevitable. He didn't bleed for every nation to be his, for it to be left up to chance. He didn't didn't give his life and then rise again so that it all depended upon whether or not we would be obedient to disciple the nations. It's going to happen. God has promised it. Whether or not we participate in that resurrection power, that is up to us, but he will accomplish his purposes. I think that we need, we need God to answer this prayer for us. So let's pray. Almighty God, we bow our hearts before you. You are the Father of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, so that we might know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us. And Lord, I know that there are some, especially, who just do not feel like you treasure them and that you delight in them. I pray especially for those brothers and sisters, that they would know that they are part of your inheritance, your treasured possession. And we ask, Lord, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above, far above all 
of your enemies who are set against you. And above every name that is named, in this age and in the one to come, you have given him to be our head, and you have placed all things under our feet. Would you help us to see it, Lord? Because if we could see it, we know that we would be changed. If we could see you in your glory, we cannot say, stay the same. We ask, God, that the inevitability of Christ, of the increase of his kingdom, would bear itself out in our midst, in this valley as it is in heaven. Amen.